Welcome to Stories of Emotional Granularity, a podcast about the diversity of emotional experience. My name is Jonathan Cook. I'm a research consultant who studies the subjective side of humanity. When I talk about the subjective side of humanity, I'm talking about the internal experience that people have of themselves, in contrast to the external performance of themselves that they create for consumption by others. External appearances of how people seem to be feeling often don't match the emotions that people are feeling on the inside. In this week's episode, we'll be focusing on the emotion that is provoked when the maintenance of an external performance of identity slips. The emotion we're exploring this week is the feeling of being unmasked. Defined literally, a mask is something that's designed for a person to wear over their face, covering the face itself with something else. A mask obscures the face of the person who wears it, but also reveals a personality of its own. So to feel unmasked is to feel as if one performance of identity has been removed, making it possible for others to observe something of the self that had been hidden from view. Of course, not all the masks that people wear can be tied on with a piece of string. People wear figurative masks as well, making deliberate choices to present themselves in a manner that seems authentic but doesn't match what they're feeling on the inside. Consider the case of Sonia Kursoljevic. Sonia was born in the nation of Yugoslavia, a country that put on the appearance of unity during the Cold War, but which splintered into bitter, violent conflict when the power of central authority fell away. In the aftermath of this national splintering, Sonia herself experienced a proliferation of different versions of herself. Beginning in her childhood, Sonia's life was characterized by frequent transitions. Even now, as an accomplished woman, she is many things. A strategist, a painter, a consultant. There is no one thing that I do. I'm doing multiple things. In my previous career, I worked in innovation and product strategy. So that was kind of my background. I have a double master in engineering, but I didn't really ever work in engineering. So it's interesting, you know, again, choices I have made as a young self, thinking that this is what was expected of me and realizing on later in life that those are not things that ever suited me. And really had to put a lot of effort in order to be successful in that world, using and developing skills that were not as natural to me as it is, you know, things that I do now. Sonia hints at a conflict between what others expected of her and what she felt comfortable with. For a long while, Sonia complied with expectations, performing a version of herself that pleased others but felt unnatural to herself. She created a mask of success to conform with the roles that others had assigned for her, but the effort required to maintain that mask became too much. 
Eventually, Sonia decided to try to remove her mask, to show her authentic self. The trouble, she discovered, is that she was wearing many masks. I don't think it's one moment of unmasking. I think it's a process of unmasking. You know, I was raised in a very peculiar set of circumstances. I grew up in ex-Yugoslavia. I left during the war. And I think without going into too much detail around it, it's really a defining, one of the those defining moments of my life, you know, leaving on that big journey of not really knowing where I'm going, leaving something behind that I didn't necessarily wanted to leave, but it was beyond my control or circumstances. And it's coming to 30 years now. And I think it's a significant moment of, I felt in the last couple of years that I have gone the full circle. You know, I left country that wasn't really mine anymore because I was born in Yugoslavia. And all of a sudden, because of the, you know, really civil war, I was pushed in a way of choosing who I am or what I am, and I couldn't. I moved to Canada, then to US, then back to Europe, then back to US, then, you know, back to Europe. And every time I was kind of faced with the same set of circumstances in US, in San Francisco, when Twin Towers came down and Bush decided to go to war and felt very familiar to me and I didn't want to be part of that. So I came back to Europe. And then I was in New York during Trump <laughs> reign and left and came here to Brexit. Maybe that's a story that I kept saying to myself. Maybe that's one of the masking or unmasking that happens. And then there is the personal story. You know, I was born in a family of two girls and my mom was 19 and she had me. And I played a very peculiar role in my original family where I was told from early age that, you know, I'm a big girl. I can handle it. My sisters was always young. My mom was really beautiful soul that just couldn't find her place in this world and raised me as a friend, not as a mother. And so I was the one who buried a lot of burden in my family, a lot of, you know, so I assumed this role where I was of help, of service, of being a mother to everyone, even before I had my children but never felt safe to show up, never felt safe to really show who I am. And when you combine that internal story, which came from, you know, the way I was raised with this external story of never feeling that I belonged anywhere, I just felt that I learned early on in life how to put a mask and how to mimic what was going on around me and to make sure that I fit in in whatever set of circumstances internally or externally are around me. But that meant that I didn't really ever show up as me. Sonia had become such an adept mimic, moving not only in space between cultures, but also from role to role associated with different social relationships that she lost track of herself. Her masks helped her to blend in but to the point of becoming invisible to herself. Sonia had lost her internal story about who she was. I often think that we try to go on this journey, call it spiritual or whatever you want, but because we are not ready or the fear is so strong that that 
unmasking becomes a bit superficial. You know, we unmask certain parts of ourselves, we change job, we leave relationship, we do something. But if the structure underneath is still solid, you just replace one story with another. I think, you know, I've been through many heartbreaks in life, but breaking that story and breaking myself apart, it's probably the hardest thing I ever had to do. When you really look you look yourself in the mirror and you don't know who you are anymore and you realize that everything that you were holding on has to go. Every story you ever told yourself, every belief you ever had. And slowly, I think after that, you start to heal and you start to create space for, for something else. You know, Rumi calls that to take a step with no feet. And I love that line. You really have no idea where you're going. And there is no security because, you know, the security came from the internal narrative. It never came from external world world for me. But when you break that narrative apart and you can't rely on it anymore either, I think this is when you start to grow and you start to explore and you start to give yourself permission to, to be something else. And you don't know what it is. And I'm still uncovering. And the more I don't know, the more exciting this is. Sonia's transformation began with the realization that she had been wearing a mask. However, the simple decision to remove her mask became more complicated when she realized that she had been wearing many masks, one on top of another. Now, in her life as an artist, Sonia is pursuing a practice of perpetual unmasking a process of self-discovery that she describes as an uncovering of herself, breaking her own narrative apart with no idea of what she will find beneath it. Such a process of unmasking requires great bravery because the masks that people wear are not mere ornamentation or play-acting. Masks often serve a function of protecting the people who wear them, hiding the vulnerable places where they can easily be hurt. Many times the masks people wear hide people's vulnerabilities from themselves, enabling the maintenance of a performance of the self in a denial of the terrible impact of traumatic events. This was the kind of mask worn by Eric Christensen, a creator of documentaries whose latest film is called Unmasking Hope. My name is Eric Christensen, and I'm a filmmaker. I really don't like the word filmmaker. I'm more of a messenger and, I guess, a conveyor of emotions, maybe. You know, uh, with my work, which started over, you know, 30 years ago, this particular niche, I guess you say I'm in, about uh, filmmaking, about telling the story after trauma and telling the story of hope and recovery and all the myriad emotions that these survivors go through. But uh, 30 years ago, I lost my home in the Painted Cave fire disaster in Santa Barbara, California. And I was a filmmaker then, but I was doing a very, very different kind of filmmaking. I was doing commercials, music videos. and uh, But after losing my home in that fire, kind of hitting my bottom, I kind of uh, erased the slate that went before and uh, started anew, got clean and sober, and I made my first film called Faces in the Fire that was about surviving that fire and the recovery afterwards. 
If you are struggling to understand what masks have to do with trauma, just think of the masks that we wore during the global trauma of the COVID-19 pandemic. Those masks protected us from others and protected others from us. The masks of the pandemic came to represent our isolation and the desperation we felt in a perilous situation that was beyond our control. We hid inside our homes, and even when we ventured out, we remained hidden behind our masks. And I've done four films in this kind of genre, I guess you would say, with my latest being Unmasking Hope. One of the things that these survivors do, we have 9-11 survivors, we have mass shooting survivors, sexual trauma survivors. One of the things that the survivors do and why we named it Unmasking Hope is we put a mask on top of our persona and it uh, covers up our emotions. Or we just feature one emotion by having that mask. I think we've all struggled with that through the pandemic, wearing these masks and trying to communicate because we're not using our faces. And it's just such a huge tool to convey our feelings through our face. Carl Jung calls it a persona. You know, our persona it's, it, it is our mask. It's our being and that personality that we present to the world. That covers up a lot, that persona. We can hide behind that persona. We we call it a mask in, in you know, our use in, in unmasking out. Such is the power of masks that even when a mask appears to serve a merely functional use, it soon takes on a psychological role. The masks we wore during the pandemic provided literal protection from the inhalation of coronavirus, but also enabled us to play the role of good neighbors, even as those masks hid the feelings of terror and display from those we encountered occasionally in public spaces. Putting on these masks was, in a practical sense, a simple thing to do. We pulled the straps over our ears, tightened them over our noses, and we were ready to step outside within seconds. The emotional burden of unmasking, however, became unbearable for some. The masks represented an acknowledgement of our fears, especially the fear of death. In a similar way, Eric's documentaries explore the ways in which survivors of trauma put on masks that enable them to cope with their loss in the short term, even as those masks can become burdens themselves the longer they are worn. The interesting thing about the mask with a trauma survivor is the mask usually starts out as a working part of their survival. For the mother that gets up in the morning, she has to get her kids off to work. So she puts on that mom mask. She puts on, no matter the what the pain is, she puts on that mask, gets things done, gets things taken care of and takes care of her family, et cetera, et cetera. It's when the mask overtakes us. It's when the mask, we can't take that mask off anymore. We're scared to show the world what's behind us because they're going to find out something about us because we're, we're kind of broken deep down. It goes back to the word that I chose, unmasked. When we when we are unmasked, we're naked and vulnerable. We've taken off that persona that we show the world. And they're like, oh my gosh, they're going to see who I really am. Are they going to accept me? 
Are they going to see the broken me? Are they going to see that I'm not, I don't have it all together or whatever, whatever that may be. But, you know, going back to how it really works in Unmasking Hope is it's about these people that have went through severe traumas, put that mask on, had difficulty taking that mask off. It takes a lot of different, you know, avenues that mask. It could be a lot of different things, but it's also about the healing that happens when we start to heal and that mask starts to come off and we start to be unmasked. And it's a hope following that because then we get to our real selves. And a lot of times it's a brand new self. It's not the person that we were before the trauma necessarily. It's this new person that's coming up. And that new person, you know, has a lot to offer the world because they've been through something that really tried them and really tested them. And we take that mask off and then we can hopefully go help others or, you know, have a testimony about the power of resilience. Eric describes how survivors wear masks to obscure their pain, to create the appearance that in spite of their tragedies, they remain unbroken. Of course, a mask in itself can't heal an injury. It merely hides the damage. He argues that healing becomes possible when the mask of strength is removed, allowing a person to develop a new, more authentic identity that displays the damage of trauma, along with the resilience to keep going on in spite of it. This isn't a lesson that Eric learned just by talking to other people about the trauma that they have been through. Eric's journey as a documentarian began with a trauma of his own. The painted cave fire that destroyed his home and exacerbated his already troublesome use of alcohol and mind-altering drugs. All my films have the core in my own experience in recovery. And, you know, I, I've, I'm still in recovery from drugs and alcohol. I, I, I'm still a man in recovery for 32 years. I've been clean and sober now. And uh, I have to I have to work it every day. So it is a key part of my life. And it's also my entree, I guess you would say, into my ability to empathize with these individuals that are in my film, be able to connect in a very real way and under, understand their journey. I'm not in their shoes, but I do have a very good understanding of their journey. While even though it's very different than mine, that's the gift that I got from having went through that. The funny thing in this whole thing is that the fire itself, yeah, it was definitely a disaster in my life, but I was the one that really caused my own trauma by my drinking and drugging, by my reaction to that disaster. And so I understand trauma and I understand the recovery afterwards. For Eric, mind-altering substances created a mask that seemed to soak into him to create a performance of a different version of himself that was so immersive that he soon became lost within it. I'm always discovering that I'm wearing a mask still. It's like, oh, okay, maybe I have to let that down. But going back to the actual fire, you know, the first mask I put on was, I, I was already not a social drinker or drugger. And uh, 
what happens with trauma is people have pre-existing conditions, whatever it may be, but the traumas have a tendency to exacerbate it and bring it out big time. So my mask became after the fire. Well, you would drink also if your home burned down. It's a great excuse, but it's also a mask and something to hide behind. And it did protect me in a certain way from like dealing with the the fact of I had so many other issues why I drank too, but it all came to a head with that. That was like my initial mask until I discovered that there was a way out seven months later after that fire. And I met with uh, a group of guys, a group of, well, not just guys, men and women similar to myself, then I saw, oh my gosh, those people don't drink anymore and they seem to be happy. And that's when my mask started to crack there. I, I knew there was a way out. I felt pretty hopeless, you know, in my addiction. And that was the trauma that I put on myself after the trauma. I, I saw other people leading the way that were sober, that were living the life. And that's when my mask started to come down. Eric talks about the way in which the protection of wearing a mask comes at a cost. Masks hide the people who wear them, growing in power until eventually there can seem no hope of ever taking the mask off. Another person who helps others gain the courage to take off the masks that hide their identities is author Lee Wind. Lee writes books for young people who are struggling with the fear of self-expression in a world that sometimes literally punishes people for displaying aspects of identities that don't conform with normative expectations. I guess a lot of what I write are the books that I wish I had had when I was a kid growing up. So I'm gay, but I was very closeted and didn't come out until my 20s. So a lot of the books I write are for that closeted gay 11-year-old, that little kid that needed to know that they weren't alone in the world. And I'm also Jewish. Uh, I was raised uh, Jewish by uh, parents that immigrated to America from Israel. And unfortunately, they sort of brought their homophobia with them. But they also wanted to instill in me a sense of pride in being Jewish, being raised in a community that wasn't particularly Jewish. So that was an interesting sort of disconnect. So my first picture book is red and green and blue and white, which is inspired by history, inspired by a true story that happened in Montana uh, in a community that was mainly celebrating Christmas uh, there was one house that was celebrating Hanukkah and they had de decorated for Hanukkah. And uh, there, had been, there was a hate crime. Someone threw a stone through the window of the little boy's room in that house, that the window that had been decorated for Hanukkah. The community sort of stood up against that hate. And at, in my sort of inspired retelling, there, there are two sort of pivot points. One is that the, the little boy and his family have to decide, are they going to, they're, they're, they repaired the window, but then the next night, are they going to put up their decorative menorah and their decorations again, or are they going to kind of hide being Jewish, which is very resonant for me as a Jew, because, you know, 
many of my extended family were, were killed in the Holocaust and the whole Kristallnacht thing with Germany. And so it, it was, it, there's a lot to be said for standing up for yourself. But then this little boy had a friend across the street and um, she's inspired to, when, when she sees that they do relight their decorative menorah, um, she wants to, to do something for her friend. And so she draws a picture of a menorah and puts it up in her window and that in next to there are all their Christmas decorations. And so that really inspires a movement in the whole town. And in real life, the, even the local newspaper printed an editorial asking people to put up with a giant image of a menorah, uh, asking people to put up the image of the menorah in their windows in solidarity. And in the space of three weeks, over 10,000 homes and schools and businesses and libraries displayed both the symbol of, um, of Hanukkah and the, the decorations for Christmas. And so the Hanukkah colors are sort of blue and white and the Christmas colors are red and green, which is why the book is called Red and Green and Blue and White, because when we all stand up together, we're stronger. And, and that's sort of the true meaning of community. Of course, outside of books, when people express identities that don't fit with the majority's ideas, they often don't receive support from the people around them. Instead, they suffer what happened to Lee when he was a boy. At the age of 11, he decided to put on a mask of heterosexuality when he saw his own family mock the gay identity he had just discovered within himself. I remember very, very vividly being 11 years old in New York City with my family on vacation. And it was like a hot summer day and we were down in the village and we went to get ice cream. And we walked into this ice cream store and the two 20 somethings behind the counter where they had all the, like, the tubs of ice cream were dressed up basically for the tourists. It was like there was a, a very attractive guy in his early 20s who was really muscular with no shirt, wearing a sort of like harness with metal and leather straps and in jeans and just, uh, and there was a, a woman about the same age who was like wearing a leather bra and leather pants and had like a whip on her hip. And they were just, it was something done for the tourists, basically. But I was 11 years old and I was gobsmacked by the guy. And I just, all these things clicked together in my mind. And, you know, standing there in line about to order, you know, chocolate chip ice cream, I just suddenly was like, oh my gosh, that is what I aspire to. That is what I want. I, I want to be the kind of guy when I grow up that, this guy would sort of flirty smile at like it just like it all coalesced in that moment i was so taken and excited and just filled with hope and like nothing had ever made sense you know in terms of looking at girls or being prompted to look at girls by my dad and suddenly i was like oh my gosh that's the answer and somehow I managed to order and got my ice cream and we, we left and I was like looking back kind of to see what my future might look like one more time. And then my family started laughing about the freaks we had just seen. I realized 
like not even five minutes after the, the, this huge realization about who I was that I had to keep it a secret that they might not love me if I was honest about how I felt that being just myself might risk everything. It's very hard to talk about, but like that is the moment that I went into the closet and I was 11 years old and I was in that closet until I was 25. That mask, I look back on it and it's incredible how inauthentic I was, how I was acting every single day. Everything was an act. Everything was trying to be the person that I was trying to be shaped to be. And the ramifications of that came out in so many different ways in my life. I had a really bad temper when I was like 12 and 13. I would get into screaming matches with my dad, like almost nightly for a time there. I had so much betrayal and anger and all these warring emotions within me. And yet I felt like I, if I was honest, I would lose my parents' love and I would lose my family. And I don't know, I mean, I was 11, 12, 13 years old. I did a lot of things because it was what I was supposed to do, but I didn't feel authentic. Um, I dated girls. I didn't feel it, but I knew I was supposed to do it. And I felt horrible. I still feel horrible looking back. I was like, I can't believe I did that. I talked to friends that are still best friends with people they went to grade school with. I don't have any friends from grade school or middle school or high school. I have one friend from college, but it's only because I reconnected with her like five years later after I had already come out and uh, we reconnected. But it's like my entire childhood and teens and young adulthood are like seen through a mask. And you know, when you wear a mask, you can't see very well, <laughs> it gets in your way. And I look back with a lot of sadness at that time. I wish I had felt safer to come out. I wish I had had the courage to be more authentic, but it didn't feel safe. And, you know, my message isn't that everybody should come out and be authentic 100% right now, because it's just not safe sometimes for people to do it. And we have to acknowledge that and be real. But maybe at least in your mind, you can be safe. You can create a safe space to be authentic and then hopefully get to a place in your life where you can be yourself. And then the, the process of unmasking, I think is also really interesting because it's not just a one-time thing. Coming out is a continual thing to the point where now as an adult, I literally work into every conversation when I am meeting a new person within the first minute, I will let drop that I have a husband. And I present very masculine, this is just audio, but like. Yeah, it may, I make it very clear that I am gay really early on in meeting somebody new because I do not want to waste my time. I am too old. And if, if somebody is going to be weird about my being queer, then I don't need to interact with them. And I want, would rather front, front load that litmus test uh, and find out right away if they're going to be weird because I've been burned too many times. Uh, when my husband and I had our daughter and we were, we, we were raising her from, you know, a newborn. Uh, we had just moved to a new uh, neighborhood of Los Angeles and that didn't have a lot of two dad families. And it was just a constant, constant coming out. 
like in the supermarket. Oh, mom's day off at the gas station, you know, like just every, every single interaction was me coming out over and over and over again. No, my husband's at work. Uh, no, her other dad is meeting us at the park. And, and, you know, going back to that idea of being a lighthouse and like, you know, sometimes it's just living your life changes the world. Like if you live your life authentically, you're kind of changing the world just because people are seeing, oh, look, there is a way to live authentically. And I mean, I remember we had, you know, the, the, the person that ran the preschool that we, our daughter went to basically, you know, have a very emotional moment with us because she had never had a two dad family there before. And she didn't know all she knew was the stereotypes. She thanked us for sort of helping her have a better understanding of sort of our shared humanity. I feel like the process of being authentic when it's not what the everybody expects around you is a continual unmasking until the until you reach a point where you're like, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to put on a fake mask for you. There's a point at which when you when you have like you can travel the world, you can go anywhere. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to go to any country where being my authentic self is illegal. So like, you know, we were talking about going on a trip to, you know, a country and I was like, no, I'm not going to go. <laughs> Cuz I don't want to I don't want to have to be nervous about that. I don't want to have to, you know, First of all, I don't want to support them with my money, but more of all, I don't want to, I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to, I, I don't want to have to hide. I don't want to pretend. I, I spent too long pretending. At the age of 25, Lee Wind took his mask off and admitted that he is gay. To understand why he chose that moment to come out of the closet, we could look at the immediate circumstances, the positive motivators, However, to examine only that moment would be to miss the emotional arc of the 14 years that he avoided taking off the mask of heterosexuality. The emotion of feeling unmasked is significant because its structure shows the importance of interpreting emotion in context. Emotion isn't a simple static condition that can be observed and measured in a snapshot of a single frozen moment. Emotion is often felt as a trajectory between different points in time. A person cannot feel unmasked if they haven't first felt compelled to hide some part of themselves behind a mask. The feeling of being unmasked comes about as one part of a longer struggle over performance and authenticity. It isn't about a simple relationship between an environmental stimulus and a psychological response. The stage is set in an ongoing drama. For that matter, Lee's experience of unmasking isn't a single event. It becomes an ongoing process of removing the mask of presumed heterosexuality. Masks, it turns out, aren't only put in place by the people who wear them. Sometimes masks are created by people who observe us, or even by an entire cultural system that advances certain appearances as a norm to which everyone is presumed to conform. 
In American culture, there is an intense conflict about the norms of gender roles. Some people are dedicated to the traditional model in which each person has only one gender, which is always in alignment with their biological sex and which never changes. The experience of Savannah Hawk, however, doesn't follow that traditional model. Savannah is dual gender, presenting as female some of the time, but going under the name of Chuck and presenting as male for most of the time. I am a biological male, and unfortunately I have to label myself in this way in order to describe who I am. A biological male, signed male birth, I am dual gender, which in my specific case means that I have a periodic feminine expression to match with my gender identity. So 85% of my life, my day, I am male. And then for the other 10, 15% of my life, I am presenting as female in a very binary way, even though I am considered non-binary. I advocate, I write books, I do TEDx talks, I do workshops, all as Savannah which is kind of ironic because it seems like for somebody who has 15% of my life, she definitely takes over a lot more of my actual energy. So that's pretty, pretty astounding, but I do have a day job. So, you know, my male side gets to bring the money and pay the taxes. So it works out pretty good. So in 1996, years after I was born, there was this whole other origin of me stepping into the name Savannah, stepping into the heels of Savannah, putting on the wig, putting on the clothes, going out to the clubs with people that love me and who could protect me and serve as surrogates to shepherd me along. And here I am in, in going clubbing in Manhattan in, in the 90s, which was a huge step for me as well. Cross-dressing is not an identity. It's just an art form that I use. So with that light bulb in my head, it really boiled down to, it's like, well, what am I? You know, people always say, it's like, why do you cross-dress? It really shouldn't be, why do you cross-dress in the way of like, oh, you're a cross-dresser. It really is, what is that driver? What is that gender diversity that requires the art form to take place in that way? So in, in that reality, my dual gender identity is who I am. That is my identity, and cross-dressing just helps me to present it. I've written two books about cross-dressing. They're both called Living with Cross-Dressing. The first is Defining a New Normal, and the second is Living with Cross-Dressing, Discovering Your True Identity. They are tackling relationships. They're tackling cross-dressing 101, why you cross-dress, should you cross-dress, like kind of getting rid of some of the myths out there and misconceptions about what cross-dressing is. As with Lee, Savannah was presented with one mask that they were expected to wear for life. Savannah describes this as like a confinement, like being a house with its windows always closed to prevent prying eyes from peering inside. Unfortunately, with somebody like myself who has faced parents who would talk about the kid they thought was gay across the street and how they talk, the tone in which they talked about it made me very early on say, hmm, I think I'm going to um, not tell my parents about what I like to do. And that pretty much shuddered me in a way that I had to 
dampen my fire. With Savannah, the dynamic of unmasking is complex. They step between identities, adopting one mask and then another. Timing is of the essence in Savannah's transitions because each mask comes with its own rules. Coming out from under the judgment of their parents, Savannah still has to create a new set of rules for each version of themselves, behaving in a way that fits the present context. There are places only Savannah will go, and places only Chuck should be. It was a time when I was sitting in my office in this early executive meeting. We're all sitting around this big table, watching a PowerPoint, blah, 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 quarterly this, profit that. And, you know, we're all glazing order over, but we are still, you know, paying attention. And I looked down and I realized that my hands, again, this is in Chuck mode. I realized my hands were one over the other on top of the cap of my knee and my legs were crossed in a very feminine way. Now, that was purely natural on my part. It was comfortable. I felt comfortable doing it, but I was unaware that I had done it. And very quickly, uh, but very discreetly, I made sure that I took a more masculine pose in sitting so to not bring and draw attention to myself because of fear of how people would perceive that that way of presenting yourself like oh he might be gay or he might be a little a little little feminine it's like i i didn't need that so for me in a lot of ways chuck is a lot of times the mask i wear because i do only allow certain people into the world of savannah savannah is that person i have to sequester in different ways because i have to make a risk assessment about who i feel is worthy which is a kind of a terrible way to put it, but is worthy to know me in my full self and is deserving of that. Or if I feel like I'm keeping something from them and I think they deserve to know me fully is when I tell them about Savannah. So again, I live a life that's 85, 90% Chuck. So with that in mind, I'm always keeping something away from the world because Savannah only comes out on a Sunday or goes to special, you know, workshops or TEDx recordings or whatever it is, that happens purely in a very pocketed part of my life. Therefore, you could say that Chuck is a mask I wear all the time, only because I am not revealing Savannah to the world either. I have heard that being said about alter egos and secret identities. And there's even a, a point to be made that well, when you put all that makeup on and you put all the padding on and, and the wig, you're wearing a mask. Well, I mean, yes, but then you could have to say that about every woman who has gone to Ulta and bought cosmetics or wears high heels. I mean, you could say that about every woman who puts lipstick on that they're masking themselves in some way. Um, and ironically, in my case, wearing that makeup is twofold. One, the better I am at it, the more protected I am in public, because if I can blend in, so I can stand out and be very, you know, put on a lot of makeup and be very it girl. But yet, because of that, I can blend in and be perceived as a female, which gives me a lot of protection from people who may want to hurt me if they thought I was really a man in a dress. So in that way, the mask I wear is really more of armor than it is a mask. 
in that way is, is yeah, it's just, but yet I'm putting all this extra stuff on me that I would normally d- never do as a man. So is it a mask or is it really what I need to do to bring out the truth on my feminine side? Mm-hmm. So which one is the mask? I mean, I should, I could probably write a, a whole thing, write a, have a podcast about this. It's like, what mask do we actually wear? There are so many people I've met who are biologically male or female, and they spend a lifetime subscribing to, I need to have the house, the husband or wife, the kids, the picket fence, the dog, the career. And then come 30 years later, they realize, oh, I'm in the wrong body. So they had been wearing, suppressing themselves and their truth for this mask in life they were living for the first 35 years, 40 years of their life. So which is a real mask? I mean, I think we all have masks to the world. It's like, I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a TEDx speaker. I have a home life. I love my dogs. I have a career. In all those instances, we do wear masks or we only present a certain part of ourselves in that arena because that's what the brand says we should do or that's what the situation calls for. So yeah, I would question anybody who says they have not been unmasked and don't wear masks at all. Savannah's experience suggests something other than a distinction between a true self and the masks that a person wears to disguise that identity. Savannah's perspective is more in the direction of what Walt Whitman suggested when he wrote, I contain multitudes. We can never display our inner selves directly to anyone, even the people we are closest to. We can try to explain ourselves, but our social performances are always indirect expressions. What others see of us is always incomplete. Our words, our body language, and our facial expressions are superficial indications of ourselves, outward manifestations that often don't match our internal emotional lives. Is this dishonesty? Perhaps full honesty isn't possible. A day lived in complete authenticity would be exhausting and could lead to self-destruction. As Savannah says, we all wear different masks. It's just that some of our masks are more obvious than others. The feeling of being unmasked is the feeling uh, that a certain performance of ourselves has been dropped, allowing people to see something else. What lies beneath, however, may be just another mask which in turn can be exchanged for another. The feeling of being unmasked is a reminder that identity is not solid and stable. Our sense of self is fluid, changing from moment to moment. That isn't to say that we are incapable of perceiving anything about the people around us. No mask is completely opaque. In that direction, next week, we will examine the emotion of Dadiri, the feeling of deep listening. Until then, thanks for listening.